Let's begin this time with a word of prayer. Almighty and glorious God, we give you praise tonight. We thank you, Lord, what a wonderful opportunity for this many folks to gather together on a Friday night to open the word, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be edified, to be strengthened. Lord, we're appropriate to be rebuked and corrected. Lord, that we would be well equipped for every good work. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your servant, Mark Fatata. We thank you for his family, for his dear wife, for loaning him to us this evening. Uh, for this weekend, Lord God, for a safe travel here. And we do pray, Lord, that his time with us would be a blessing to him as well, that he would enjoy the sweet fellowship of this uh, wonderfully sweet congregation, uh, that he would enjoy his time here in Millbrook, and, Lord, that he would leave this place uh, refreshed by being in the house of the Lord. We ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, make our hearts soft, that we would receive your word with excitement and great joy. And, Lord, bless our time as we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, welcome. I'm delighted to be here with you to teach for the weekend. And uh, the only thing I'd rather do this weekend than teach the Psalms is teach Hebrew. But if we were doing Hebrew, my guess is you, you probably would have all left after dinner. <laughs> so the Psalms has a little bit more opportunity for us. So we're going to just spend five sessions uh, together studying the book of Psalms. Now, to start with a question, uh, does anybody remember or has anybody used daily bread? Does that bring, what is, somebody tell me, what do you, when I say daily bread, what do you think of? It's that little booklet, devotional. You can probably still see it, right? Yeah, that's not the daily bread that I'm thinking of. I got a different one. When I first started to date my wife in college, she lived up near Erie, Pennsylvania. And I remember that I went to her house for the first time. We drove up on a Friday night. Saturday morning, we're sitting down for breakfast. And in the middle of the table was a little plastic loaf of bread. And it was hollowed out, and there were these little cards in it. And, and the cards had a Bible verse on it. And Mamie would uh, pull one out at breakfast, and she would read that verse for us, and that verse was our, that was our daily bread. And of course, it didn't hold that many, so what she would do after that is she would take them out and she would shuffle them, and after she shuffled them, she'd put them back in so that, you know, we could have more daily bread for the coming week. Well, what's that have to do with the book of Psalms? For most of us, and I was this way for many, many years, that's kind of how we use the book of Psalms. We don't stop and think about it, but kind of our presumption is that the Holy Spirit inspired 150 people to write various Psalms and then told somebody to put them on index cards and shuffle them and put them in the book called the Psalms. In other words, we use them kind of as if they're a random collection of prayers and praises. Now, just to be, we'll go into maybe a little bit more detail later, but just in general, we can put all the Psalms, if we were to put them on index cards and put them in two shoe boxes, we would have two shoe boxes and, um, now this is technical, stay with me, one of those boxes would have happy Psalms and the other box would have sad Psalms. And so when we're happy, we kind of dip in and we pull out a happy psalm 
if we're sad, we kind of dip in and pull out a... Yeah, I don't mean to say that you're never going to do that again. Guess what I still do? But there's more to the book of Psalms than that. How many of you think that the chapters in the book of Romans are there randomly? No, they're... Um, You've all been taught in one way or another in your Bible study that whenever you study a text, you have to study it in its context. So if you're studying Matthew chapter 4, it really helps if you've read 1 to 3 and if you look ahead to 5 and 6. Well, the same thing is true of the book of Psalms. They're not random. It is a book. Uh, sure, it was written by 150 uh, people. Of course, David wrote a lot of them. And uh, they, they weren't just put in any kind of random order. The book of Psalms tells a story. So this evening, we're going to start, and our text is Psalm 1 to 150. We're going we're gonna to study the whole book of Psalms as if it's a big unit with a story to tell. And, uh, and it is. So that's what we're going to do. The focus of this week, of the weekend is really, I guess if it's one word, we could say the focus is flourishing. God has created you to flourish. Just think of the Garden of Eden. God created you in a beautiful world full of abundant resources. It was good, 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 very good. And he created you in his image so that you could experience a full and rich life of flourishing. That's God's intention in creation, that human beings flourish. And since God created every aspect of your lives, in how many areas of life did God create you to flourish? One? All of them, yeah. Jesus is Lord of what? Part of your life? No. See, we kind of messed this thing up then through the fall. And um, God did not create you for sin and misery. God created you, as we'll see tomorrow, to be holy and happy. But because of our rebellion against God, we brought sin and misery into the world. But that's not what God originally intended in creation. And that's not what Jesus intends in redemption. Jesus didn't come so that you could be more sinful and more miserable. Jesus came, John 10.10, so that you could have what L word? A little bit of it? Abundant life. That's flourishing. In creation, God's design is for human beings to flourish. In redemption, God's design is to bring people back into that state of flourishing. Give me one word that describes what heaven is going to be like. What's life in heaven going to be like? Starts with FL. Yes. Life in heaven is going to be a flourishing life. And the book of Psalms, as we're going to see, can be thought of as a manual that God has given to you. A manual so that as you study it and reflect on it, you can experience more of the flourishing life that God intended in creation and that Jesus came to bring. Jesus did not say, I have come to harm you, to kill you, to destroy you, but I have come so that you might have life in all of its 
abundance. Or we could say that you might have a flourishing life. Now, the fact of the matter is, this side of the resurrection, how many of us are going to flourish perfectly? No. We'll talk about that. Um, But the fact that we're not going to flourish perfectly doesn't mean that we don't have hope in our hearts. For, For increased flourishing in every area of our lives in this life, even as we anticipate the fullness of that flourishing in the life to come. So that's what we want to look at. We want to look at what, what, is, uh, what is a flourishing life. Uh, some people might think, well, a flourishing life is having a lot of money. Well, God is interested in your finances, for sure. Just read the book of Proverbs. He has a lot to teach us about how to use our finances well. The Bible says a good man uh, uh, stores up an inheritance for his children's children. I never have liked, sorry if any of you have ever had it on your RV, if you have an RV. I've never liked that RV bumper sticker that says, we're spending our children's inheritance. That's not godly. Godly people seek to build up an inheritance to pass that on to the next generation so that the next generation has it easier. (laughs) Now, I see we have a little bit of family stuff going on here. Yeah. Do we have a therapist here? That I think these three need to go off into the office and have a little private session. So we want to look at what this flourishing looks like in five sessions. Tonight we're going to look at a doxological life. Doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above you heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Uh, A flourishing life is one that has a focus. And it has a focus on glory. Your glory. And ultimately, God's glory. Uh, We're also going to look tomorrow morning at the flourishing life as a happy life. And what what does the Bible mean in Psalm 1 when it says, blessed? What is that happiness? and the holiness that goes along with it. Because a flourishing life is going to be a life where you're truly happy and you're truly holy. Uh, We're going to look at, uh, after that, a majestic life. That's tomorrow in the second session. We're going to raise the question, when you think about who you are, what's what's the most fundamental thing that comes to mind? I am a... And often for Christians, the answer to that is sinner. That's true. But I want to show you from Psalm 8 tomorrow morning that being a sinner is not the most fundamental thing that you should think about when you think about who you are as someone who has been created in the image of a majestic God. And so a flourishing life is a life that understands your majesty as a human creature, because you've been made in the image of a majestic God. And if you're made in God's image and he's majestic, you can only be one thing. You can only be majestic. As we're going to see, you're like grandma's pewter vase often, right? There's not much shine, a lot of tarnish. The gospel can be seen as God's um, silver polish, 
where he's shining away all that tarnish so that the majestic people that he has created you to be and that Jesus has redeemed you to be, after all, Paul says, you are being transformed from one glory to another as you look into the face of Christ. And so understanding who you are as majestic creatures made in the image of God is part of this flourishing life. Uh, Sunday morning in Sunday school, uh, we're going to look at an honest life. Because if uh, the truth be told, every one of us could come up here right now. And if we were willing to be transparent, we could all share those dark areas in our lives where we are not flourishing. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some besetting sin. The reality is, and I know this is going to surprise you, we're not in heaven. We are not there yet. And there is that tough side of life, and it's a tough side of life that we need to learn to be honest about. And if the Holy Spirit does anything through the book of Psalms, the Holy Spirit gives us the the freedom to be honest with ourselves and with God and with others about how we truly feel and the struggles that we really have. That's flourishing. A flourishing life is an honest life. And then we're going to conclude on Sunday morning, Lord willing, uh, by looking at Psalm 30, a grateful life. Somebody who is truly flourishing sees the negative, and it's there, but, but the overarching perspective that they have on life is how grateful they are for how good God is. The fact of the matter is we're all flourishing uh, to one degree or another. How do I know that? Well, just think about the food that you just had. Think about the fact that we're in a, a warm building. Think about that you have enough health and enough material prosperity to have driven a car here. Uh, you have relationships. Are they all what they should be? No, but are, 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 do you have good relationships? See, we already are flourishing to one degree or another. And through the book of Psalms, the Holy Spirit just wants us to grow. So that's our agenda for the weekend. And we're starting this evening with that idea of the Psalms and a doxological life. So as I said, we're going to study the whole book of Psalms now. But we're going to do it by doing two things that you can see in your outline. The first thing we want to do is we want to look at the title to the book. You know, it's often the, uh, it's often the case that a, a, a title is significant in terms of telling you what, the, what, what a book is about, what the storyline is. Joy comes in the morning. Brandon mentioned that one. Out of the books that I've written, in some ways, that's probably my favorite. Uh, that book tells the story of, of my family for, um, from the time the kids were, the first kids were born, uh, probably until we moved to Florida. That's about when it was written back in 1999. And the Psalms, let's, let's get a little more technical and say there aren't three shoebox, two shoeboxes, there are three. There's a shoebox for hymns. That's when all is well. Then there's a shoebox for laments. That's when the bottom falls out. 
And that's, then there's a shoebox for the songs of thanksgiving. That's when, in the language of the psalmist, God takes our feet out of the miry clay and he puts us back on a firm foundation. So we have hymns, laments, and psalms of thanksgiving. And there are three chapters in the book. And the first one is about what hymns are like in the book of Psalms. And I relate that to the first years of our marriage and our family when we were kind of like Midas. Everything we touched turned to gold. It was good. It was easy. And then I talk about the laments and our move to California and how for 11 years we lived in a dark valley uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it, it was no longer easy. Everything was hard uh, in our lives. And then the last chapter on the the, um, the songs of thanksgiving is how God brought us out of there in our move to Orlando, and he put our feet back on solid ground. Part of the reason I, that book is so special to me is because it's kind of a map of uh, the first, I don't know, can't count, 30 years or so uh, of, our, uh, of my wife and I living together uh, as um, husband and wife, and then with our young kids, and then as the kids grow. Probably needs a sequel, another chapter added to it, uh, what's happened in the last 15 years or so. But uh, what we're going to do then is look this evening at just the title to the book of Psalms. And once we learn why the book of Psalms has the title that it has, then we're going to walk our way through the whole book and see the dynamic movement that is there and how that movement shows us a picture of the life of Christ and how it then shows us a picture of our own lives and where we are headed. So first of all, the message of the title. And it's a title of praise. Now, the title in English is what? It's obvious. What's the title of the book we're studying? Psalms. But most of our names for books of the Bible, for characters in the Bible, most of our names don't come to us directly from the Hebrew tradition. They come to us mediated through the Greek and Latin tradition. For example, in the Old Testament, you have a bunch of people with J at the beginning of their name, right? Give me an example. Jacob, Joseph. Jethro, Jeremiah, yeah. Guess what letter Hebrew doesn't have? There's no J in Hebrew. Uh, So when these names uh, go from Hebrew into Greek and then into Latin, you got to change them some because Greek and Latin don't have all the same sounds that Hebrew have. So just as an illustration, uh, the same thing with books of the Bible. What's the first book of the Bible? Genesis, not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the first book of the Bible is Bereshit. And the reason it's Bereshit is because that's the first word in the book. And in Jewish tradition, you name things after the first element. And so Bereshit means in the beginning. So if we were just translating the title of the book, we wouldn't call it Genesis. We would call it in the beginning. And the second book is called El Shemot. These are the names because that's how the book starts. And the third book is called Vayikra. And he called out. Um, But we have different names for them. 
And in the same way, we have a different name in English. Our name Psalms comes from a Greek word, and it comes from a Latin word. And basically, those words mean like psalms sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. Now, publishers probably wouldn't be real big on naming a book songs sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. But that's where, that's where our title, Psalms, comes from. And in all honesty, that one's not going to be very helpful in understanding the book of Psalms. It might be more helpful if we looked at what the ancient Hebrew title is. Maybe there's some revelation in the ancient Hebrew title. Now, I mentioned that the only other thing I would rather teach, by the way, I love quarter sawn oak, just in case anybody was wondering what I was thinking when I'm looking at the surface of this. What's that? Quarter sawn oak is just beautiful, isn't it? It's just flat and true. It, it, no cupping, nothing. Just beautiful. Um, where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, um, the oh, what I said was, if I weren't teaching Psalms, I would want to teach Hebrew. So we got to learn at least a couple of Hebrew words along the way tonight, okay? Here's your first one. Tuhilin. Everybody say Tuhilin. Now, in Hebrew, we tend to accent words on the last syllable, not like English, which is often like on the next to the last syllable. So it's not tehillim, it's tehillim. So we don't say shalom, we say shalom with the accent on the last syllable. So tehillim, if you want to spell it in English, T-E-H-I-L-L-I-M. That's pretty good. Tehillim. That's the Hebrew title, tehillim. And it means praises. So the English equivalent to the Hebrew title is not songs sung to the accompaniment of plucked instruments. It is praises. And our question tonight is really this. Why did the ancient Hebrews call this book praises? Now let's go back to our two boxes. Happy songs and sad songs. If we were to put all the songs on index cards and put them in those boxes, which box has more psalms in it? Sad. Why did they call a book that has more sad psalms than praise psalms? Praises. The technical word for sad psalms is lamentations. So why, what's one reason they didn't call it lamentations? We already got one of those in copyright laws even back in the day. So... Uh, <laughs> So that, that would never have worked. Um, but as a matter of fact, there are more laments than there are praises. So the, the ancient Hebrews must have understood something about the Psalms, the book of Psalms, in order to name it happy Psalms, praise Psalms, and not laments. That's what we want to answer. Why praises? Uh, but before we get to answering that by running through the whole book, because that's the only way we can answer the question, is by understanding the whole book. Let's look just for a moment at that thing on your outline called the way of praise. Now, uh, if I were to say, praise the Lord, 
who's my English grammarian here? What punctuation would we use? Exclamation point. Because when we use those three words, praise the Lord, in, in English, we usually use it as an exclamation. Praise the Lord. Wasn't that a great day? Now, the book of Psalms does use it at times as an exclamation. In particular, if you look at Psalms like 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, uh, what translations do we have that we, do you, we normally use? English Standard? If you look in your ESV, the ESV is going to have, at the beginning and end of all those Psalms, praise the Lord, exclamation point. And they're right there. It is an exclamation. In Hebrew, it is what? Anybody know? You know. There's a chorus that you know. Hallelujah. The hallelujah chorus. I, I, I love language. I'm sorry. It's like one of my favorite things. It's right up there with woodworking. I, I have dictionary.com on my phone. I have an etymological online dictionary so that I can find out where words came from. It's just the language is one of the things to me that proves God exists. It's just such a marvelous. I mean, talk about technology. The technology of human speech and the ability to understand it. But here's something that you may never have thought about. Have, uh, have you ever listened to Handel's Alleluia Chorus? No, it's the Hallelujah Chorus. Why do some of our songs say Hallelujah and some say Alleluia? It's because the Greeks and the Latins don't have an H. <laughs> That's all. Yeah, Hebrew is hallelujah. But when it goes into Greek and Latin, they can't say, so they just end up saying, hallelujah. Now you know why there's a difference between, that was worth the price of admission right there. Yes or yes? <laughs> All right. So the point is that, that in Psalms, at the end, like 146 to 150, it's an exclamation, hallelujah. And one of the ways we know that is that when the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek, in Greek, you do not read the Greek words for praise the Lord. You know what you read? Hallelujah. In the New Testament, when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament where you have these hallelujahs, the Greek New Testament doesn't translate it. It just says, hallelujah. And that shows us that they weren't hearing a command to do something. They were hearing an exclamation. Hallelujah. And so sometimes, praise the Lord is an exclamation. But most of the time, praise the Lord in the book of Psalms is not an exclamation. It is a command that expects you to do something. Now, how many of you would think it odd if I were to say to Brannon, uh, Brannon, open the door. And he were to stand up and say, open the door. That'd be a little weird, yes? Because if I say open the door, well, maybe for him, no. <laughs> if I say open the door, I'm not saying say open the door. I'm asking him to actually do something. Yes, go back and open the door. And in the same way, when the book of Psalms says, praise the Lord, it is not looking for you to say, praise the Lord. It's asking you to do what? 
to actually praise the Lord. Now I'm going to give you two words that I think are good words for what the book of Psalms means when it is inviting you to praise the Lord. One is confess and the other is acknowledge. When you confess who God is and what God has done and what God is doing in your life, that is biblical praise. When you acknowledge with your mouth what God has done, who God is, what God is doing, that is praise. Not saying praise the Lord, but actually praising Him. So that um, if you think of Psalm 103, pretty well-known psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What hasn't the psalmist done yet? Hasn't praised the Lord yet. All he has done is called himself to praise the Lord. Ah, but when you start to go to the next verses... He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He renews my youth. Like a father is tender and compassionate, God is tender and compassionate. That is biblical praise. Biblical praise is confessing who God is, what He has done, what He is doing in your lives. Now, I don't preach against contemporary uh, music. Uh, it's not, you know, one of my the things that I do. I've been in churches for many years that have used contemporary music and not hymns. And in all honesty, the older I get, the more I have moved to wanting a traditional liturgical worship service. When I don't know what the worship is like, this is always a little bit dangerous. But, um, uh, you know, things like the Apostles' Creed. See, when you recite the Apostles' Creed, don't just think you're reciting the Creed. What are you doing? You're praising God. You're confessing who God is and what He has done and what it is that you believe about God and about yourselves and about His creation and about His plan of redemption. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. That is biblical praise. Confessing, acknowledging who God is and what God has done. So with that out of the way, we got to come back to this question. Why did the ancient Hebrews call this book the book of praises? And to answer that question, we want to now look at the message of the entire book of Psalms. And of course, we can't do a real close analysis of all 150, right? We got to be Tom Sawyer tonight. What did Tom Sawyer paint with? Whitewash, but what kind of brush? Wide brush. So this is going to be a run through the book of Psalms uh, in broad strokes. Or maybe Tom didn't do the painting. Did he, Tom get somebody else to do the painting for him? Yeah. That's flourishing right there. Getting somebody else to do your work for you. Okay, so we want to look at four things here. And they all build on each other. The first one is the book of Psalms moves from lamentation to praise. Or to put it another way, the book of Psalms moves from suffering 
to glory. Now, it is true that there are more sad psalms. There are more laments than there are happy psalms, than there are praise psalms. But if we were to make a distribution chart of where these psalms occur, it is very clear that the front end of the book of Psalms is loaded with laments. It's loaded with sad psalms. Let's just take a look at a couple of them. Let's start by going to uh, oh, Psalm, Psalm 3. That's a good place to start. Notice in verse 1, it says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying, of me, God will not deliver him. Just jump to Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear, hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? Go to verse, I mean, to uh, Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Go to Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, How long? Uh, Go over to, uh, let's just skip to verse, I mean, uh, Psalm 10. Just giving you a sample. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. Go to 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? In Psalm 4, in 3, the psalmist is in trouble. 4, trouble. 5, trouble. 6, trouble. By the time we get to 10 and 13, I say the psalmist is in double trouble. And you may have been there before. It's one thing to be in trouble. 
It's another thing altogether when you are in that dark valley and you have no sense that God is with you at all. That's double trouble. It's hard to go through hard things in life, isn't it? But isn't it easier when you have that sense that God is with me? Yeah, but here, there's no sense that God is with David. That's double trouble. By the way, just to get off the subject for a moment, um, what's Psalm 23 about? Summarize it for me. This is a trick question, by the way. What's Psalm 23 about? Just real, real brief in general. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, not really. Because in that psalm, there are two images. And the first image is the Lord as shepherd. And the second image is the Lord as host, providing us with a banquet. So we could say, well, Psalm 23 is about the Lord as shepherd and host. That would still miss the point. Oh, the ancient, ancient Hebrew mothers, uh, they taught their kids so many beautiful things about how to write literature. And one thing they did was they taught their kids how to count in a variety of ways. And this is off the subject, um, but no tuition uh, for this comment. Psalmists often counted so that they would put the main point of their psalm right in the mathematical center of the poem. And sometimes that's the number of poetic lines above and below. Sometimes it's the number of words. But... Um, Poetic lines are made up of two halves, and we call each half a colon. And if you count down uh, 26 cola, and then you count from the end 26 cola, there's a phrase right in the mathematical center. You know what that phrase is in, in English? You are with me. See, because sometimes you find yourselves in the green pastures and by the still waters, yes? Sometimes you find yourself in that darkest valley. Sometimes you find yourself with the Lord spreading a, a feast before you. What that psalm is telling you is that there is something fundamentally more important than whether you're in the green valley or you're in the dark valley. What is the most important thing is that you know, thou art with me. Because if you are in green pastures and the Lord is not with you, trust me, those green pastures are not really so green. And if you're in the darkest valley and the Lord is with you, as the psalmist says, even in darkness, light shines for the gracious and for the upright. Oh, Hebrew mothers were wonderful. They taught their kids how to, how to point us to the central message of Psalms, not every Psalm, but often enough by having the heart of that Psalm be right in the mathematical center of the poem. Now, if I do that too often, I can never remember where I was. Oh yeah, we were talking about double trouble, yes? And, uh, the psalmist being in double trouble. Well, all I've done is illustrated for you the fact that up front you have a heavy load of 
How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? Why, O Lord? Now, remember, we've already talked about Psalm 146. Uh, Just take a look there, 146. And uh, you'll see in 146, it starts with, um, praise the Lord. And 146 ends, praise the Lord. Look at the first three words of 147. Last three words of 137. First three of 148. Last three of 148. First three of 149. Last three of 149. This is a bit different than how long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? You see, there is a movement in the book of Psalms from lamentation up front to praise at the end. There is a movement from suffering to glory. The book of Psalms is about doxology. Uh, the reason why I call the book Joy Comes in the Morning and the reason why I treat the Psalms in the order of Him when all is well, uh, lament when the bottom falls out, thanksgiving is because there is a trajectory. We are not defined by the lamentation, by the dark. That's not where we are heading. We are, we are people with a destiny as we shall see. And our destiny is doxology. Our destiny is glory. The book of Psalms is moving us in that direction. Now, uh, any parents here? A couple, you've raised some kids. Let me ask you a question. When you told your kids something, did they always get it and do it the first time you told them? I mean, everybody but Brandon. Uh, Sometimes our kids need, starts with an R, repetition. Well, guess what? God knows that about us, right? Okay, we have just seen 146, 147, 148, 149. You would think that by now we would get the message, right? But God knows maybe not. Maybe we need 150. Thirteen times in 150, it says, praise the Lord. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, just in case you haven't gotten the point. And then just in case, in case you haven't gotten the point, in the last verse it says, let everything that has breath. And what are the last three words of the book of Psalms? Pray. Now maybe God thinks, okay, maybe with 150 they're going to get the point. You see, this is not a random collection. There is clear movement in the book of Psalms from lamentation to praise from suffering to glory. Now, is it really nine o'clock? No? Does this thing... Yeah, but th- this clock is in central time. See. Oh, you mean you preach so long that they have to adjust the clock up a whole hour to get you to quit? Is that, is that what this is? Where are, where are we? Oh, it, it's only 
It's not even 8 o'clock yet. Oh, we're good. We're good. Okay. All right. Now let's look at that second point. The laments move from lamentation to praise. I had an interesting conversation. I didn't expect to come here and find somebody at dinner who not only knows harmonica, but knows blues harmonica. Uh, knows Charlie Musselwhite, the king of Chicago blues uh, harmonica. But um, 12 bar blues is my favorite. And 12 bar blues, there's a certain form to it. Uh, it's all, everything's accomplished in 12 bars, and there are three sets of four. And if my math helps me, that means it's three times four is 12. And so a typical song will go something like, Woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't find my baby. Woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't find my baby. She must be running around with somebody else. And then you do that all over again with another 12 bars. And then you give all the uh, instrumentalists an opportunity to solo. And then you might have some kind of maybe just a repetition of the first 12 bars all over again. In other words, the 12-bar blues, there's a certain form that they follow. Now, sorry, I don't know anything about classical music, but I'm guessing that like a concerto like has some kind of form that it follows and uh, a minuet or whatever these other things are. I don't, I don't know. I, I like the blues, not classical. Um, but at any rate, the, the laments have their own form. And here's the basic form of a lament. Help God, I'm in trouble. That's the first half. And the second half is, praise the Lord. In one way or another, the laments end on some kind of positive note. They end on hope. They end on praise. They end on confidence. There's that kind of movement. Just think of Psalm 22. A classic lament. Anybody know how Psalm 22 starts? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That crystallizes the first half of the psalm. And the first half of the psalm ends at verse 21. Somebody look up Psalm 22, 22. That's one of my favorites. That's 24. Psalm 22, 22. Maybe I ought to preach on that one on Sunday morning. We're going to have a camp meeting if you start quoting that one. 22, 22? Yeah. Wow. Have you ever stopped to think about that? The psalm starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden in verse 22, it says, praise the Lord. Like this guy probably needs therapy. Uh, some kind of, I don't know, split personality or something. How did he make that move from lamentation to praise? Why did he make that move from lamentation to praise? All I want to say at this point is that the movement in a lament is from the negative to the positive. From lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. In other words, the shape of the book of Psalms mirrors the shape of a lament. It, it follows that same positive, moving from the negative to the positive. That is typical. Now, there, there is, there's one Psalm that doesn't follow that. There always has to be an outlier, yes? 
There always has to be the exception. And that exception is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the darkest of laments. Uh, Depending on your translation, here's how 88 ends. The darkness is my closest friend. That's dark. The only hope that you can see in that psalm is that the psalmist is praying. The psalmist must not have given up completely because he's still talking to God, even though he had, I mean, hope is like, there's that old hymn, Flickering Torch. You know, well, what's that hymn? Oh, love that will not let me go. And there's a line in there about uh, a flickering torch. I give thee back the borrowed ray. I mean, there's just very little hope. Uh, somebody divide 88 by 2. 44. That one also is pretty dark. But they're the exception. They don't make this grand move from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory, from negative to positive. They stay there. But they're the outliers. They're the exceptions. They're not the rules. So what have we seen so far? Well, there's movement in the book of Psalms from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. And that movement is the same movement that you have in the lament. Like a 12-bar like a blues has a movement, the laments have movement, and it's from lamentation to praise, from suffering to glory. Now, the third thing we want to say, see is that Jesus' life moved from lamentation to praise. In other words, people will often say to me, which psalms are messianic? And my answer is, all of them. But even more than that, the whole book of Psalms as a book is a picture of the life of Christ. Uh, After Jesus uh, had been crucified and he had been raised from the dead, but people didn't yet know he was raised from the dead. There were these two good Jewish men and uh, they were walking on a road to Millbrook. I mean, to... um, They were walking on a road to Emmaus. And I have a hunch that if we could be a fly on the wall that didn't exist because they weren't in a room but on a road, they were singing Psalm 88 because they had no hope. Because all of their hope had been pinned on Jesus. And as far as they knew, their hope was dead. They were singing Psalm 88, the darkness is my closest friend. Okay, fellas, uh, time for a confession. I like chick flicks. I can't tell you how many, um, what are they, uh, Hallmark Christmas movies? (laughs) My wife and I watched on the back patio over Christmas. And why, I don't know. It's all the same movie, right? The, uh, the guy comes from out of town and he's a very successful and she's running the bakery and she's about to lose her business and, and they start to fall in love with each other and then she realizes there's a reason why she should hate him and not love him and so they break up and then at the end they come together and they are on the park bench with a new baby. Um, they're, they're great movies because they, they, they're, they're very theological. And what I mean by that is they show us hope. 
that in the end, it's all going to, and isn't that what you want? And guess what? Everybody you know wants that same movie for their lives. Everybody wants to believe that somehow it's all going to work out and we're going to live happily ever after. And the reason why people have that hope is because they've been created by God and God has created them to live happily ever after. We just blew it with our sin and Jesus came to bring that happily ever after. But that's just one of my, this is not a Hallmark movie, but it is one of my favorites. Princess Bride. (laughs) Now, guys, if you haven't seen it, your assignment is to watch it over the weekend. And uh, it has got great sword fighting, yes? The sword fighting is just superb. So there's some... There's some testosterone in the movie. But uh, my favorite scene is Billy Crystal and Miracle Max. Because they think that um, Wesley is dead. And so they have no hope. But Miracle Max lifts up his arm and drops it and says, he's not dead, he's just He's just mostly dead. (laughs) That's a great scene. I love to see the gospel in movies. I'll get back to that in a minute if I remember. Princess Diary. Wonderful movie. Wonderful movie about the transformative power of the gospel. But I'm going to save that until tomorrow morning when we look at a majestic life. So now let's get back to Miracle Max. So when these guys were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said to them, Fellas, if you had only understood the Old Testament, and we could say if you had only understood the book of Psalms, you would understand that we can summarize the Old Testament as teaching two things about the Son of Man. One, the Son of Man had to... Give me an S word. The Son of Man had to suffer and then enter His glory. There it is. Jesus says you want a summary of the whole Old Testament. It's that simple. Cliff Notes version. Don't have to read all 39 books. It's all about the Son of Man making a move from suffering to glory. And of course, there was something that had to happen in between the suffering and the glory. What had to happen to Jesus? for him to move from suffering to glory. The resurrection. After his ultimate suffering, he had to be raised from the dead. That's why I love the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed is so different 
than Miracle Max. Miracle Max said, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. But what does the Apostles' Creed say? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, just in case you don't get it, dead, in case you still don't get it, buried, in case you still don't get it, descended into hell. Jesus wasn't mostly dead. Jesus was dead, dead. What kind of power did it take to raise Jesus' lifeless body from the tomb? Yeah, see, the New Testament says that's God's power that is work, that is at work in you. That is the great, how could the psalmist, Psalm 22, go from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to praise the Lord? It's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if God has raised Jesus from the dead, what is there that he cannot do for you? One of uh, a, a mentor that my wife and, ha- and I had in California years and years ago, she was a, um, a different kind of Christian, thought outside the box. And she said, Mark, Christians believe that God can raise them from the dead, but not from a bad attitude? Really? You see, when you read the book of Psalms, you're reading a picture in poetic words of the life of Christ. The Son of Man who had to suffer, be raised from the dead so that he might enter in to his glory. So it's not just that some Psalms are messianic or that all the Psalms are messianic. The whole book of Psalms is a picture of the Son of Man who had to suffer and enter into his glory. And then with that, we come to our last point. Our lives are moving from lamentation to praise. Once you see that the book of Psalms is a picture of the life of Christ, and you acknowledge that you have been mystically united to Christ in his suffering, in his resurrection, and in his ascent to the Father's right hand, then you can see that the book of Psalms is really a picture of your life. I wish it weren't the case. I wish that when God justified us, He immediately translated us into glory. But in His own wisdom, He's chosen a different path. He's chosen to transform us from this veil of tears to the fullness of joy over time and through process and through growth. He's chosen to move us from suffering to glory, not in a moment, but in a lifetime. And we have to trust his wisdom in mapping out our transformation in that way. He didn't have to, did he? Does he not love us enough to bring us into glory immediately? Is he not wise enough to bring us into glory immediately? Doesn't he have the power to bring us into glory immediately? He must be doing this for a good reason. The fact that we don't know what that reason is just tells us that we're human. We're finite. 
Uh, as R.C. Sproul used to always say, if, um, if we were to know everything there was to know about God, either He wouldn't be or we would be. We're finite and we're sinful. No surprise that we can't figure God out all the time. We have to accept our finitude, accept our limited knowledge, accept the mystery that there is in life. I wish it were the case that we had no suffering in our lives. There were no dark days. There were no broken bodies. There were no broken minds. There were no senseless killings. There was no sex trafficking. There was no social injustice. I wish none of that were here. But it is. And in some mysterious way, it's God's plan to bring us from where we are to where He wants us to be. And if you find yourself in any way, to any degree, needing to use those lamentations, how long, O Lord, why, O Lord, where are you, O Lord? Use them. We're going to have a whole lesson in Sunday school on the honest life. We're going to study Psalm 13 carefully. Read it before Sunday morning. Wonderful psalm uh, that teaches us about being honest. I wish we didn't have to, but the Holy Spirit has given us such gems in the book of Psalms to help us through that valley of the shadow of death. But I want to end by telling you that is not the final song of your lives. That, do you ever feel stuck? You're not. If you feel it, that's okay. Say, I feel stuck. But the fact of the matter is you are never stuck. You are always heading toward your destiny. And your destiny is not sin and misery. Your destiny is happiness and holiness. Your destiny is doxology. Your destiny is glory. There's a, there's a group of uh, Christians, and uh, I don't know if they're a denomination or an association, um, but they're called Sovereign Grace. Have you heard of Sovereign Grace churches? I, I used to have a, quite a few friends up in the D.C. area uh, from the Sovereign Grace churches, and I used to joke with them. Uh, and the way I would joke with them is I would say, you know, when you guys were uh, a kind of a loose organization of charismatics, you had a great name for your organization. You were called People of Destiny International. And then you became reformed and you changed to Sovereign Grace. What a name for Christians. People of destiny. That's who you are. And your destiny is not suffering. Your destiny is not misery. Your destiny is flourishing. Your destiny is glory. Your destiny is the abundant life that God created you for and Jesus has redeemed you for. And it is going to come. Now, I'm the son of a cabinet maker. I am not the son of a prophet. And I can't tell you that in any area of your life that flourishing is going to be here tomorrow or in a week or in a month or in your lifetime. I wish I could. But I guarantee you that it's coming. And how do I know it's coming? It has to come. Not because the book of Psalms moves from lamentation to praise. Not because the laments move from lamentation to praise. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
And he has already entered glory for you. And since he's entered glory for you, he will eventually bring you to be with him where he is in the Father's glory. That's the book of Psalms. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for what you reveal to us in it about who you are and what you have done for us and who we are and what you're doing in us. We thank you that you have told us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Uh, we struggle with unbelief. Our faith is small. Please take this, uh, this reflection on the book of Psalms and strengthen our faith that we might see you in your glory and that we might know that we are your children heading for that same destiny. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If Mark has kind of spurred you to think about some things tonight and you had a question well up in your mind, we'll take any, any questions that you might have for Mark. Stumble's probably a pretty good description. Uh, without going into great detail, um, there was a scholar probably 40 years ago. And well, let me back up just a little bit. It's hard for me to give a short answer to anything. With the rise of liberal theology, people began to chop up the Bible into littler and littler sections. And um, they would say that Moses didn't write the five books of Moses. But somebody wrote like this part, and somebody wrote this part, and somebody wrote this part, and then people began to sew those parts together, and they needed an author for it, so they said, oh, let's say Moses wrote it. This is liberal theology. Well, the, the whole focus of scholarship, of liberal scholarship, became taking the Bible apart, breaking it up into these little components and trying to identify who created this component and who created that component. Well, let me just ask you, how does that feed your soul on Sunday morning? doesn't. And in reaction to that, people started to say, we've got to study the Bible the books of the Bible as they are from beginning to end as the Holy Spirit gave them to us. So now people are starting to be interested in studying the book, not just like a verse from here and a verse from there, but the book as a whole. The Holy Spirit put the whole thing together as a unit. And then there was one of the students of this, this fellow who wrote a doctoral dissertation on the book of Psalms. This was probably 30 years ago. Uh, I was a much younger scholar back then, and it piqued my interest. And so I started to pursue this, studying the book on my own, reading what other people were saying about this whole area. And uh, so that's kind of how I stumbled uh, onto studying the book of Psalms as a whole. Psalm 23? Yeah. Yeah. Um, most poetic lines are made up of two halves. 
like a wise son brings joy to his father, a foolish son grief to his mother. There are two half lines and they correspond with each other. Those half lines, each one we call a colon. The plural of that is cola, like, you know, Coca-Cola. Since we're not in Atlanta, we can probably say Coca-Cola. Yeah. Judge, yeah. see the commercial where they're, where they're, they're saying there's some, some commercial about is Pepsi okay? Yeah, have you ever heard any, have you ever gone to a, 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 a restaurant and said, uh, may I have a Pepsi? And they say, well, is Coke okay? <laughs> of course, I'm prejudiced, you know, I'm a, I'm a Coke fan. Uh, cola. Colon, cola. So if you count from the beginning to the down 26, and you count from the end up 26, right in the middle, in between those two 26s is one colon. And that colon is, for you are with me. Now, why is the 26 significant? The Lord's personal name occurs only twice in the whole psalm. First line, last line. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, ancient Hebrews did not have Arabic numerals. They hadn't been invented yet. By the way, they're not even Arabic. They're Indian. But Arab mathematicians in the Middle Ages uh, took those Indian numbers and used them for the basis of modern mathematics, and so we call them Arabic numerals, but they were really invented by folks in India. That's free also. <laughs> so ancients often used the letters of the alphabet for, for numbers. So A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and this is why names can have numerical value. This doesn't happen all over the place in the Bible, but it does happen. The Lord's personal name starts with a Yod, that's a 10, and then it has a He, which is 5, and then it has a Vav, which is 6, where am, where am I? And then it has a He, which is 5, so what's the numerical order, the numerical value of the Lord's personal name? <laughs> 26. And it only occurs twice, once at the beginning, once at the end. And you count down 26, the Lord's name, you count up 26, and right in the center of the poem, you are with me. Not an accident. Um, this does not happen in every psalm, but there's an, uh, an article written by a fellow named Eric Zenger, and he finds about a half a dozen places where the center of the, the main point of the poem is in the mathematical center in one way uh, or another. I'll give you another short example of that. The, uh, the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. I call it the perfect blessing. It's made up of three parts. There's a little prose introduction, then there's the blessing itself, and then there's a little prose conclusion. Three parts, three is a number of perfection. The word bless occurs three times. Once in the introduction, this is how you were to bless my people. Say to them, once in the blessing, the Lord bless you, and once in the conclusion, and I will bless my people. It's a perfect blessing. The poem itself of the blessing is made up of three lines. Perfect blessing. The first line has three words in it in Hebrew. The last line has seven words, like the seven days of creation, perfection, completion. The middle line has five words. 
there's nothing special about five other than the fact that it is perfectly situated where? In the middle between three and seven. Uh, and then if you count the letters, there's perfect symmetry. The first line has 15, the second line has 20, the third line has 25. This is not accidental. No, this is not Bible code. This is not like the Lord embedding a message telling us when the Russians are going to attack Afghanistan. No, it's, it's not that kind of thing, but it is poetic device that the ancient poets put into their literature to help us understand uh, the message.